0: The oppressed has an alternative perspective, whereas the oppressor has only one. And that is why we have to turn to the oppressed, we have to turn to nature, we have to turn to women, we have to turn to indigenous people, uh, we have to turn to the marginalised society to sh- make the shift that will create a world that is um, good for all.
1: advocate and champion for nature and indigenous cultures, who for millions is a bright light in the global environmental justice movement, this is Dr. Vandana Shiva. And welcome to Pod Academy. With a 40-year career as both an academic and activist, she has authored titles celebrated for her theory and experience, which flow between the pages and include Staying Alive and Soil Not Oil. 2014 marks the 20th year since the first publication of Ecofeminism, which she co-authored with German sociologist Maria Mies. We're here at the School of African and Oriental Studies in London to record Vandana's talk, which marks the launch of the second edition of Ecofeminism, published by Zed as a classic in the Critique, Influence, Change series. Just before the event starts, I've got the opportunity to speak to her about the background of the title and the ideas it puts forward. I'm going to start by asking how ecofeminism, as a book was born. Well, the
0: the book has a very interesting genesis. Um, Maria Mies had written um, Patriarchy and Capital Accumulation on World Scale. It was a bestseller. I'd written Staying Alive, and that had done very well. And it was the first time, in a way, a, a title was connecting the issues of the paradigm of development with what's happening to women in the third world, what's happening to ecosystems in the third world. Um, and then Zed said, it would be really good if both of you could do a book with combination of perspective from the North and the South. And it shows that there are common patterns because we'd write chapters and they'd be about the similar phenomena. And one was in rich, rich, rich Germany and the other was in India, which at that time, when we wrote it, was not part of the Shining India campaign. And the book chapters then just fell into place. Uh, Not because we planned and said we'll write chapters on this, but because both Maria and I do thinking engaged in activism. There's an illusion that you have to be either an intellectual or an activist, and the two don't meet. In my view, real Reflection on the world we are in can only come from engagement in that world, not by sitting in uh, Ivory Tower and imagining you know all. When you don't write with a vested interest, when you don't write because you're serving some master, when you write in the freedom of your mind and your spirit, uh, but with a deep connection of compassion and uh, involvement and inclusion with every being and every person who's being trampled on, you don't get dated.
1: And um, what's the main thesis of the book? Ecofeminism is really
0: looking at the dominant worldview and the structures it has created um, which have been driven by the convergence of capitalism and patriarchy uh, and looking at it from the point of view of nature and women um, for a number of reasons. First because uh, the oppression of nature and women uh, served the building of this paradigm. Nature was defined as a woman, uh, and both were then defined into objectification and therefore into objects of violence. Ecofeminism is a celebration of the creativity of nature and creativity of women. And it's basically, in a way, waking us up to see the illusion that capital creates. So uh, the new edition of Ecofeminism, of course, is an update. And um, that everything we said, whether it was the violence, it's just gone worse. And whatever we said about alternatives have just flourished better. And uh, if we, I'm sure if we were to re- uh, reissue 20 years from now, I don't know if we will be around, but um, the two trends will just have deepened.
1: You've kind of anticipated my next question. Is eco-feminism gathering momentum?
0: When we wrote eco-feminism, there was a whole new generation of young women who were fed up with the academic feminism, which had, in a way, totally turned its back on the women's movement. We mustn't forget that women's studies grew out of the women's movement. And in the early days, theorising, and activism was one and then you got into this academic strand and what happened was at that time then younger women who were engaging with the world started to get marginalized but there's a whole new wave now I believe because the crisis is so deep Um, but the beauty of this wave is when I go to universities The ecofeminism courses is is half men and half women.
1: What role can men play in this vision? The big
0: difference between the early days of when I wrote Ecofeminism and today is at that point, a lot of men took it as a personal affront. Today, a lot of men are recognising that we are all subjected to violence. That uh, we are now in the 1% oligarchy model. Most men, too, are suffering. But men are also suffering with the construction of masculinity. Just as women suffer if they are treated as passive and a second sex, men suffer when they are defined into violence, like Mussolini's quote, war is to men what maternity is to women. War is not to men. Most men want peace most men want solidarity.
1: Is the violence a physical violence or is it also a violence of repressing all the capacities that we have as humans? It
0: is both. It is the physical violence but the repression of the potential of human beings to be beautiful individuals.
1: So your book speaks to men? And children. Yeah. (laughs) So it's for... It's It's for humanity.
0: I would, if you were to put it in a small way, I would say ecofeminism is the door to explore the best of our humanity and the best of our Earth citizenship. Yeah. It's an invitation.
1: In your introduction to the book, you say that the language of eco-feminism is about freedom as opposed to equality. Exactly. And and so f- it's a new language. It's that a that? new
0: language, putting diversity at the centre. Because all equality that has been shaped by patriarchy and capitalism was equality wanting to be a mirror of that violent structure. So women who became liberated were Margaret Thatcher's of the world, better than the men at doing the masculine domination. Um, I think what ecofeminism allows is the flourishing of diversity with the sense of equal
1: respect. So, kind of pluralism.
0: It is pluralism, and it's pluralism which sees the patterns of unity through the diversity.
1: Mm. What unites us as humans, whatever our culture. And f-
0: taking it further in ecofeminism, what unites us as Earth citizens and children of the Earth, as children of Mother Earth. And you know, we are a child like the trees, a child like the rivers, a child. What we've brought forward, means Staying Alive, Maria Mays with Capitalism on a World Scale, and um, a combined work in Ecofeminism, is that the roots of violence against the earth, and the roots of violence against women, and I would add roots of violence against every other, uh, has the same roots. And the roots are wanting to create an empire, wanting to dominate, experiencing power as domination and in its final expression um, power as extermination, Mussolini said very clearly that war is the highest expression of human energy and war is to man what maternity is to women. Now, that essentializing is what is at the root of all violence.
1: Before asking about what you're advocating in the book, Um, what are the problems? You've already talked about quite a few of them, but but this question is about the problems that you're challenging in the book. And then if we could move on to what you're advocating.
0: Yeah. The problems that uh, we're trying to bring forth, and as the nature of the book, uh, in in very, very uh, spontaneous evolution shows, The first challenge really is the uprooting of millions in the name of development. Displacement and the creation of homelessness. That what we have really is the world as a homeless society uh, whereas uh, oikos which means home is both the root of economy and ecology. So in the name of economy we are and taking care of the home. We are creating a homelessness, which is an absurd enterprise.
1: And you've seen this
0: directly. Oh, oh my God! This is what I see on the daily basis. Um, what has got added to it? Well, in the 90s, the uprooting was, and the 80s, it was uprooting for development project, World Bank, IMF. It then became a more structural uprooting through the rules of economic globalization. And now you have another level of uprooting through the kind of impacts we see with climate change. Um, In my region of the Himalaya, 20,000 people dead last year and hundreds of thousands left homeless. They haven't yet been rehabilitated. Kashmir right now. A valley, beautiful valley called Paradise on Earth, devastated with flooding. The coastal areas, that uprooting now, in addition to development, is being done through the ecological impacts of that maldevelopment model. Um, That's the first big issue. The second is the intolerance of diversity. And the third is the blindness to creativity. So that's really what... uh, um, are the problems we look at and see and give another perspective.
1: So what, what are you advocating in the book? What vision?
0: So what we have is a dominant economic structure which uh, is blind to the creativity and production in nature and actually negates the creativity and production of women. The measure of measurement of GDP is... If you produce what you consume, you don't produce. Since most women produce sustenance, and it's consumed at the level of the household, or the level of the community, or the level of the nation, it's counted as zero production. So, most of the work in the world is done by women, but it's counted as zero. Extraction and exploitation, which destroys our basis of life and sustenance, is counted as production and growth, and is what GDP measures. So what we are talking about in ecofeminism as well as in our other books is that we've got to start recognizing nature's economy and people's sustenance economy. Maria uses the word subsistence. I don't use the word subsistence. Uh, because in India it gets misinterpreted to mean the poor must be kept at the level of their poverty. Murray is speaking from a rich country saying we don't need to have the level of consumerism we had. But if a person is getting half the food they need, I can't say stay at that level. So I say sustenance, which means the poor must get their full meal. And the wastage that takes place in an industrial globalised food system must stop because just that waste which is half the food of the world, would ensure that no one goes hungry. So sustenance basically is producing in ways that you don't destroy the earth, that you recognise the work of people, particularly women who work the hardest, and your blind economic system and your blind technologies must be corrected with the recognition of the contributions of nature and women.
1: What is progress to you? That's a big question I know but yeah
0: um, there's a beautiful line in Tagore who says you watch a tree grow and its branches flourish and its roots grow deeper do you call that growth progress no you can't it is growing but it's not progress but the train growing from station A to B is progressing destination B as it moves closer. So progress is a very mechanistic world created for a machine world. It is not an ecological... You can't ever define progress ecologically. But you can shift growth from measuring GDP to measuring well-being. Growth can be redefined in an ecological worldview. There is nothing like progress in a world that is alive.
1: Because it's cyclical, it's a... Yeah, you don't progress
0: towards life. You are replenishing it, rejuvenating it. Uh, progress is a very linear concept.
1: Where can we look to for hope? Is there, is there hope?
0: There's a lot of hope. I, mean, I on a daily basis, uh, cultivate hope, not in an illusionary way, but in a dedicated way of saving that seed, uh, spreading the infection among others, uh, for loving uh, life on earth in all its diversity and pluralism. Uh, for building community at every level in a world where we are repeatedly told, as Margaret Thatcher said, there's no society, there's only individuals, but there is society, and we have to cultivate it on a daily basis. And there's hope for me in the fact that faster than the trends of destruction are the trends of a rediscovery of our humanity.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kundon. It was lovely to speak to you. Thank you. So now it's time for us to make our way through to where the talk's going to happen. So when
0: uh, Robert Molteno asked us to write a book together because our earlier books, my book, Staying Alive, and Maria's book, uh, Patriarchy and Capital Accumulation on a World Scale, um, had been bestsellers, Um, Roberto wanted us to do a joint book. Maria couldn't come to India and I couldn't be in Germany and we just said let's, let's write and share chapters. We didn't first write a table of contents, the table of contents emerged as life emerges and basically what ecofeminism talks about is through our experience the patterns that are emerging both of the recognition of the violent oppression and exploitation of nature and women and other cultures as well as the the alternatives that are growing through a non-violent relationship with the earth and among people including among genders. I think at the heart of the transition to a more peaceful world and a non-violent world, is a recognition that so much of the domination is through illusions which then create real violence. And That's the paradox. Now, capitalist patriarchy and I think it's really between our work that we started to name this convergence which was otherwise seen as separate there were women's studies focusing on patriarchy and in that focus patriarchy only existed in the past and many theories of feminism were based on the fact that the more the world becomes integrated in economics the less the oppressions against women or workers or people and the opposite is true. Corporate globalization is leading to the erosion of workers' rights everywhere. And it has definitely, as my new introduction shows, reflecting on the new brutalization of violence against women in India, with the highlight being the December 2012 rape in Delhi. But there, those violent stories growing by the day. Um, I have felt increasingly that we are being dominated by two major myths in our times and everything in the structure of violence is rooted in them. The first is a creation myth. I mean, Every culture has had its own creation myth. In India it was about churning the oceans. In, um, in the Bible it's about the seven days of creation. Um, every culture has had its own creation myth. But the creation myth of capitalist patriarchy is that capital creates. And the word worker has disappeared. It's become labor. Yeah? A full independent human being works. Labor is the commodified selling of labor power to capital. So labor is now reduced. A worker is reduced to labor and labor is reduced to a commodity. So humanity is commodified. And the other is land. Land is really all of the Earth's creative force. Reduced to land as a commodity. Both are then made inert inputs. And it reaches the highest level with the definition of women not working. Women don't work. And I meet so many women and they come up to me and uh, you know, they're taking care of kids. They're looking after their community. And uh, they begin with an apology saying, I don't work. I said, what do you mean you don't work? And I make them go through their day. Say, no, you work. You don't work for someone else who pays your salary. But you work to sustain life. And that's the sustenance economy we are trying to highlight in the book. I've always preferred to call that economy the sustenance economy. Uh, In Germany Maria and her colleagues evolved the language of subsistence. And I think in Germany it's really good to talk subsistence. To remind people that you don't have to buy, 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 buy every day. Subsistence there means reflecting on what you do really need. In our context subsistence has become a word to describe levels below sustenance. Food too little to sustain you, not having enough water to drink. So I use the word sustenance to both talk about the rights of people who are denied food and water, which is largely women, to have an adequate amount while stopping the waste, including the waste that comes through uh, non-sustainable economic systems of production. So the first creation myth, put creativity in capital, which can't create. It can't create because it is not a real thing. Capital is merely another word for money. And when I tried to go to the roots of capital, when did it start getting used? It started getting used really with the rise of capitalism. So money's always been in society and it didn't dominate. It was a means. If you bring out a Piece of uh, money from your wallet, let me bring it out from mine. So every note of money says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand. It's a promise, it's a mediation, it's a relationship. It is meaningless in itself. It's the promise that I pay the bearer, you know, that when I pass on 20 pounds, the person who gets the 20 pounds can command a certain amount of resources or goods or services through it. So it's a mediation between real people and it's a mediation that is an entitlement and purchasing power to real things. Capital, this redefined as capital is a construct. The original word for the roots of capital are kaput and kaput used to mean, I know kaput also means in slang, it's gone kaput, yeah? but in uh, Latin it means heads, the number of head of cattle. Now the number of head of cattle you could actually count, but capital now has been made this mysterious force of creation. And this mysterious force of creation takes labor and gives it value. Isn't that fascinating? Labor by itself has no value. I've had debates with the biotech industry where they say, by the time we are finished, the corn that the farmer grows will have no value. It's the genes we own in that corn that will have value. And the same then goes for nature. Nature creates everything, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we grow in collaboration. And yet, it's been turned into, a dead, into dead matter. All of reductionist mechanistic science had only one philosophical underpinning. Nature is dead matter. So what ecofeminism is, is removing that illusion of capitalist creation and nature and human beings as inert and passive and realizing that Capital is, in fact, dead, and creativity lies in the work of people, creativity lies in the work that nature does. Without our help, she carries on. The ultimate uh, aspect of the creation myth is, um, is what has preoccupied me for the last three decades, beginning with My attending a meeting in 1987 where the corporations who had brought us agrochemicals now said uh, we've got to own the seed, to own the seed, we've got to have patents, to have patents we've got to do genetic engineering and to do this worldwide we've got to have an international law which became the trade related intellectual property rights of the World Trade Organization. Having worked to protect diversity in the Himalaya with the Chipko movement uh, but biodiversity has been my dedication and my passion. To have these companies come up and say, now we will declare that we are the creators. Because a patent means you have created something. A machine, as an invention, is put together from scratch. An automobile is put together. Metals and rubber and electrical connections and engines. A plant is not put together. A plant is not a manufacture. A seed is not a manufacture. But it's been made. It's just like capital was defined as a creative force. A whole architecture has been built to define a gene as the creative force of an organism. A gene that's moved. Usually there are only two toxin genes, herbicide-tolerant Bt toxin, But moving a gene doesn't create a plant. The plant creates itself. this idea of patenting life is the ultimate creation myth. And we could, I mean, if you find intellectual property rights and Article 27 of the TRIPS Agreement, et cetera, too complicated. And it is. Uh, just remember, GMO is a summary for God move over, if you believe in God. Otherwise, creation move over. Um, But with this creation myth, uh, and the creation myth is now reaching the levels where the next step of this globalized green economy is, besides the fact of owning and patenting life, there is a serious effort at owning the ecological services and functions that nature provides. If any of you want to go further into that, we could discuss it later. But related to the creation myth is the production myth. And the production myth begins, of course, with that illusion of capital as the creative force of production. And it then was elaborated further with another construction called the GDP. It's absolutely, you know, it's a measure, and a measure that is defined in a very arbitrary way. It is first used during the big depression of the United States to somehow mobilize public resources in order to help overcome the economic crisis. And then it was brought to the UK as a way to mobilize resources for the war. And the definition in national accounting systems for measuring the GDP is if you produce what you consume, you don't produce. So nature Produces water and then recycles that water, so of course she doesn't produce water. But you know, when you privatise the water supply, you're now producing water. Um, I I don't like uh, plastic bottles. I've been carrying this one for two weeks now, uh, <laughs> filling it with the tap water wherever I can. But uh, this one is nice because it's 100% of our profit fund water projects in Africa. Um, but if you look at a coca-cola bottle and I never buy a coca-cola water bottle it always says produced by coca-cola and they're not meaning the plastic they're meaning the water inside all they've done is steal the water from somewhere. I was invited and this had happened much after we wrote Ecofeminism a village in um, South India called Plachimada 2002 of women invited me to join them in solidarity in the fight against coca-cola so i went because i didn't know the village i couldn't understand how water and coca-cola were connected and i couldn't understand how a group of women in a remote village were taking on this big giant and i really went through inquisitiveness to find out and i arrive and i find less than a 100 women and these were tribal women and they were being led by a 65-year-old woman called My Lama, and, uh, and she greeted me with a bow and arrow. And that was a gift to me. Um, and there were 500 policemen on the other side of the road. <laughs> I said, these guys are going to butcher the women, and no one will know. Because Coca-Cola pays so much in advertising that no newspaper was covering what was going on. What I learned through that protest was for every litter that goes into a bottle, 10 liters is destroyed and 1.5 million liters is extracted, a minimum, 1.5, to23 3 million liters in any Coca-Cola plant. Whether it's to just put bottled water or to put a little, uh, put some phosphoric acid. And we found out that Coca-Cola in tropical countries uses, it uses phosphoric acid everywhere for that ting. You know, when they say you get the cake, well, it's phosphoric acid that gives you the cake. And they use... They use antifreeze that you put into cars so that the temperature can be lowered more in that heat and you, f- you feel even colder. Um, so nobody knew what was going on. And I called up, I called up some local politicians. I said, oh, you should be ashamed of yourself. You know. Here are these women fighting and you're not there. And um, I called up uh, a regional paper, a very powerful paper And I said, you should be here. And next time I come, your newspaper must sponsor an event and cover this. Once they broke the silence, then everyone else had to start covering this movement. By 2004, the women had shut down the Coca-Cola plant. So this illusion that Coca-Cola produces water, creates water. And now, uh, because of these movements, I think we've shut down four plants. Pepsi and Coke now have advertisements that I see in paper napkins in airlines. We put back more water than we take. You can't put back more water than you take. It's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) They're little napkins, all that. We we put back more water than we take. Even nature doesn't put back more water (laughs) than she puts, you know? Um, So there is this very false way in which we are made to think of a world growing in the hands of capital, while really the world is shrinking in the hands of capital. It's shrinking in terms of nature's economy and her capacity because every time an ecological process or an ecosystem is disrupted, nature is poorer and nature has her economy. And every time a community loses its resources, either directly through appropriation, through the theft of seed or the theft of water or land grab, an issue that is so big now in Africa, Uh, and again, if you see the justifications of land grab, they will always say the peasants and the pastoralists don't generate value. But they generate a lot of value if measured in nature's economy and people's economy. They don't generate value as profits in a global economy controlled by multinationals. But that is not a value. It's a disvalue. It's a disvalue because it is based on the rape of nature and the destruction of communities. And we have a very large section on creating a world of uprooted people. Displacement has become the norm. Displacement has become the norm of economic growth. So what, is, m- m- what are the p- possibilities and potential that um, ecofeminism, which is not a f- ism, it's, it's merely, um, uh, it's m- merely a, a window, a window to see the world differently, and that seeing the world differently has become vital because the capitalist patriarchy model based on erasing the contributions of nature women people is creating a world of fear. The fear of scarcity, the fear of the other, everything you look at in the Middle East today is the culture of fear that's grown out of destroying local cultures and local economies. Egypt was a beginning with the price of bread. Look at where it's been taken. Syria, the protests were about drought and farmers not having a crop. Look where it's been taken. And it's been taken not by the people themselves, it's been taken by the world. Partly out of ignorance, and partly out of creating the final market, the final market of capitalist patriarchy is the economy of war. Uh, There's war taking place against the earth and women, but it's indirect. Now it's direct. And so much of of what peace activists and peace studies study is how the growth of arms trade is leading to so much violence uh, now they're producing more arms than they need in wars. So you might have followed the violence in St. Louis. Two black youth killed. Part of it is the police there looks like army now because all the surplus arms have been given to police stations and all the surplus arms are being given to schools because violence in schools is big in the United States. So now they're thinking the way to end violence is is turn every place into a war zone. Um, GDP is such a fictitious measure that uh, you know UK was doing very badly in GDP in its growth and suddenly its growth increased by five percent ten billion pounds. Did you start to manufacture more things? No. Did more people get work? No. They just decided Let's count the sex trafficking and drug trafficking as economic activities. And those are huge economies. In fact, the more you break down society, the more those economies of crime grow. And those economies of crime are then the place where the new GDP growth starts to happen because it has no, no value attached to it to see whether societies are better off with a lot of drug trafficking or not. Um, How do we move beyond this? Crisis created by illusions. Illusions that then predate on the real world. Illusions like the fictitious finance 70 times more. And this city makes a big contribution to that fictitious finance. The part that's called the city It's not all of London, it's just the place where speculation and casinos play. And 70 times more money is created through fictitious finance which then is used to bet further by grabbing land in Africa, speculating on food, making food prices grow, speculating on everything. As I said, the next step they're trying to get is speculating on the functions of nature. I mean, they really want to own the capacity of the green leaf in a forest to absorb carbon dioxide and release oxygen. They can't take it because it's not takeable. It's a process that only can happen in the tree itself. But what they can do is appropriate that function and sell it as a commodity on Wall Street the financialization of ecological processes is what allows it to become a tradable commodity. Um, It doesn't have to be that way. Ecofeminism is about helping us remember that nature creates, people create, women are a huge creative force on this planet, and the wonderful aspect of it is when we co-create with nature, not only do we meet our needs, we rejuvenate nature. The fiction of capital being a creative force can only exploit and deplete nature. Co-creation with nature actually gives us more fertile soils when we do organic farming. Gives us more biodiversity when we conserve seeds. Gives us more water when we conserve water. Is the single biggest solution to the greenhouse gases that are being emitted, 40% of which come from an industrial agriculture model. So I think we are at this cusp where we need to redefine production and creativity and intelligence. And we need to redefine land as labor and labor as creative people and creative nature and not have them as inputs into a linear system of exploitation, processing, generation of junk and commodities into a circular system where we produce what we need, all the food we need, all the water we need, all the clothing we need and in the process have an output, not an input of creative meaningful work for all it should be defined not as something that goes into an economic production model but comes out of a good economy Meaningful work for all, and with it, a rejuvenated nature. Earth care has to become the biggest work that we engage in. And a byproduct of earth care is all the human needs we need. And that's the kind of opening that ecoform feminism creates. And the reason um, it both creates such inspiration as well as fear is because it is going to the real foundations of all violence. Most other perspectives touch a bit, you know, workers' rights will touch on the workers' exploitation. The environmental movement will touch a little bit on what's happening to the environment. But ecofeminism goes to the false assumption on the basis of which the architecture of capitalist patriarchy rests. And that architecture is then justifying all violence in the name of progress and growth. And ecofeminism allows us to make a shift, and celebrate our creativity and our freedom. And that is the only way we will be able to make a leap beyond this predictable collapse at the ecological, political, economic, social level that we are living through. We are not talking about it in the future. It's happening now.
1: and book pods about research, go to www.podacademy.org and thanks for tuning in.